Hi, my name is Richard Sefton and this is my podcast, State of Mind, with me, Richard Sefton. I haven't recorded an episode in quite a while. The reason for that is my mum was very ill and we sadly lost her last month on the 10th of February. I'd like to dedicate this episode to my brothers, Matthew and Andrew, who have been fantastic. Their partners, Erica and Danny, who have also been amazing. And my partner, Sam, who has been my rock. But most of all, to my mum, Jane Durant. Um, this episode I feel is quite important I wanted to speak to somebody about the dying process um, if you've ever lost someone and been worried about what they're going through at certain stages of that their breathing patterns um, a bit irregular that sort of thing why aren't they eating then I feel that this is an important listen it's quite a hard listen so you know go and grab a tissue get yourself a drink and pull up a chair and hopefully you can get something out of it and hopefully you find it as an important as listen as I did to record it Today's guest has spent her medical career working with people who have incurable advanced illnesses. Spending her time in hospices, hospitals and in patients' own homes, she has helped so many people and their families in their final days and hours. So, author, doctor, CBT therapist, when does this person sleep? My mum sadly died last month and this lady helped me and my family so much towards the end of my mum's life. And so with that in mind, it's an honour to be speaking today to Dr Catherine Mannix. Hi Catherine, how are you? Hi, Richard. I'm very fine. Lovely to be talking to you after meeting you on Twitter. I know you too. It's you've got you've got such a lovely voice, and although I'd seen it and heard it on videos, it it's like a warm hug speaking to you live. Aww. Oh, how lovely! Thank you very much. <clears throat> it is. Um, so I asked in the intro when when do you sleep? Um, have you always enjoyed being a busy person? Oh, I I can tell that you've got a psychological background. Yeah. <laughs> Mm. So, yeah, I think I have. I think actually what I've had to learn as I've grown older is how to not be so busy. That's Mm. been the thing for me. Yeah. Doing things seems to be a displacement activity for being in things. Mm. So you've used, um, you found being busy over the years actually helpful because I've done the same, especially over the last year. Since mum's diagnosis, I've made myself extra busy. Now I need to learn to slow down a bit, because I can. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. When, when we've got a lot on our mind, we give ourselves lots of challenges, don't we? Almost as though somehow you can solve a problem if you work hard enough mm. at it. Mm-hmm. And that stops us maybe from getting to a place where you think, Do you know what, maybe this is a problem that can't be solved and has to be lived with. Mm-hmm. Um so yeah maybe it's part of the processing to just be busy around it until it's really properly sunk in yeah it's i mean it's it's one of those things isn't it? i mean i talk to people all the time about accepting the accepting things the way they are and yet i've probably made myself extra busy because i didn't want to accept things the way they were um but i also think it's different when you're in the situation yourself opposed to when you're talking to somebody that's going through something um it, it, it's, it's a very different situation to be dealing with your family and your grief. Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. And um, so one of the things that I wrote about when I started writing about dying um, mm. was my reflections from my grandmother's deathbed, mm-hmm. where suddenly it was like, like I was two people. Mm. The person who knew what the funny breathing sounds meant and knew that they meant that my nana was deeply unconscious Mm. peaceful safe 
dying, yes, but dying safely. Mm-hmm. And then the frightened granddaughter who's listening to those noises and thinking, are you trying to say something there, Nan? Um, what is it? What? Is, oh, are you in pain? Are you uncomfortable? Mm. And those two bits of me almost fighting each other until the kind of sensible part was able to soothe the frightened part and say, look, you, you know what this is. You've seen this thousands of times. It's just this time this is your person. And it's so different when it's your person. That sounds like the most devastating internal conflict. It, it You took me right back there, actually. Um, I know it was quite recent with my mum, so it was six weeks, uh, four weeks ago, you know. It, in fact, it was a month ago today that she passed away. Um, and the four weeks before that, she was in hospital. Um, and all of these things we were Googling, you know, is she trying to speak to us? What are these noises? Uh, what does this breathing pattern mean? All of these things. And then when I spoke to you through Twitter, when you when when I saw the videos, it made sense. And I was able to pass those on to my wider family, my mum's brothers um, and sister. One of her brothers was really struggling with the eating thing. Why isn't she eating? Why hasn't she eaten for so long? Um, her other brother was asking, you know, shall we bring sweets in, her favourite sweets? I was like, she, she's, she's passed that. Um, and it really helped to see that video because we had no clue. Um, and I, and I, that's one of the reasons I wanted to do this episode was because I thought it's a different medium. Yes, there's books out there. You've, you, you've put books out there. Yes, you do videos on Twitter, but just for somebody that maybe just listens to podcasts or something and happens to be in this situation, I just wanted it to be another medium where people could understand the the latter stages of life in the, in the way that you put it across, which I thought was beautiful. It's really interesting, isn't it, that it's the one thing apart from being born that's going to happen to every single one of us. Mm. And we know so much about birth. We have TV dramas like Call the Midwife. We have factual shows like One Born Every Minute. Everybody knows the stages of labour, what it should look like if it's going right, what sorts of things can go wrong, how important it is to do your planning up front, all the rest of it. Mm. But we don't do that for dying nobody wants to talk about it nobody wants to be the person who starts the conversation and because these days the things that make us so sick that we might die generally take us into hospital we also don't see the stages of dying happening in front Mm -hmm. of us at home like like i might have done for you know my my dear nana dying at nearly a hundred years old she was born in 1900 so first bit of her life was women's experience of dying and death and it usually was women's experience it usually was women's work Mm. where the women who'd been there before went down the street and advised the women who were there for the first time about the care of the husband the parent the dying child as it might have been Mm. those days and the person would have been at home unless they were very wealthy. So Nana knew about the patterns of dying. She'd seen it all in her own family. And you know, by the time she was in her mid-30s, so that was in the mid-1930s, yeah. she was a widow. So her husband had died of a ruptured appendix and oh, peritonitis. God. Okay, so you, you would very rarely die of that now because we have antibiotics and we have a National Health Service. Mm-hmm. But... 
he didn't have those things available. One of uh, their children, their oldest child, had died of diphtheria. Well, children are routinely immunised against diphtheria now. Hmm. So by the time she went into the Second World War, she was an impoverished widow with four surviving children and life expectancies were a little bit longer by the 1930s and 40s than they had been in the 1900s. But what happened after the Second World War was the NHS and lots of new and better treatments, often driven by war. It's interesting how often it's serving the armed forces that generates changes that then benefit the whole population. Okay, so, I never knew yeah, that. Yeah, you know, so better antibiotics, uh, safer anaesthetics, so that you can do field, you know, mm-hmm. war field yeah. um, it's surgery. But better anaesthetics means you, the, the surgery can last longer, so surgeons can do more. We started to have you know, organ transplantation, better dialysis, all sorts of things. And cancer treatments were getting better all the time. Mm. So she, there she was, dying at nearly 100, and her four surviving children, she had this conversation with me a few weeks be- before she died, which was she was worried about my mum and her siblings Mm. because they'd never seen anybody die and it suddenly came home to me because her children were in their 60s and 70s and they had never seen anybody die whereas by the time she was in her 30s she'd seen lots of deaths in the space of a single generation all of those developments that are fantastic in terms of better health care for us all have taken dying away from us. And we're now a nation that just doesn't understand the process of dying. And mm. what we do know we get from soap operas and Hollywood and reports in the press about disastrous dying. And we mustn't pretend that all dying is always peaceful, but it usually is. The mm. ones that aren't, though, are the ones that make the headlines a bit like the planes that crash rather than yeah. the planes that don't. Mm-hmm. So we're all frightened of what we've heard about the extraordinary and nobody understands what ordinary dying looks like. That's, yeah, that's, that's, it's very true because, yeah, it's, uh, no one's going to buy that newspaper, are they? Um, about somebody that's died peacefully and, uh, like you say, the plane that didn't crash. Yeah. So it's it, it it almost has to be there um, for the headline, for the sale, for the thing. But it but it's counterproductive. You say there. Um, you mentioned kind of in our country. Have you done any research into other cultures and and how they view the dying process? Yeah, it's it's, it's really <coughs> interesting. It's really interesting Ra- around the world. Mm. The more advanced the medical healthcare system is, and America is the best example of this the more likely a person is to die in hospital, to die in an intensive care unit, to have increasing interventions for very little benefit in the last year and in particularly the last weeks of their life, um, and for the family to be bewildered and still not really expect the dying. Hmm. Whereas in places in, in, in low and middle income countries that haven't got all of that technological stuff they recognize that very serious illnesses they may not have the technology or the money to treat and so 
trying to relieve the symptoms of the illness, so that's what we would call palliative care, mm -hmm. is the treatment from the get-go. And people are generally more likely to be looked after at home, more likely to be looked after by and indeed to live in extended family groups and for everybody to join in the care for a dying person so everybody then understands what dying is about. Mm. Wow. So, so a completely different view on it afterwards because of the completely different process of going through it. And so the more advanced the healthcare, the less prepared we are for death. Absolutely almost. right. Absolutely right. So we've got so much to learn from mm -hmm. those other societies. And what's what's interesting is that recently there was a paper about end-of-life care in India making this very point that as India progressively adopts quite an American-type healthcare mm. system, <clears throat> private hospitals, insurance-based care that can only be afforded by wealthy people, mm -hmm. there are now two sorts of dying. There's dying in a sparkly hospital, mm. often isolated from your family and using lots of machines. Um, mm. So people might be on ventilators, lots of drips and all of those sorts of things. And then poor people who can't afford that, who are still generally dying at home, looked after by their families, but might have difficulty in accessing even quite cheap drugs that are good for pain control. So they're not comfortable as they're dying because no. their illness is giving them pain. And maybe something really important to say here, which is that the process of dying itself isn't uncomfortable, doesn't cause pain. And talk a little bit in a minute, if you like, about what the process is like. Yes, please. But but while we're dying, we'll be dying of something. And the illness that we're dying of might have symptoms that need to be managed right up to the point that we die. So if you've got, um, you know, like a chest problem, then mm. it might make you have a cough or be breathless. Um, or if you've got joint disease, you know, very painful arthritis, then being moved in bed for care might be uncomfortable for you. So we need to think about what the illness is that the person's got and how to stop that from causing them discomfort and distress. Mm. But the dying itself doesn't cause discomfort. Mm. Which is one comfort, I suppose, that we had that, that with my mum when they got the pain relief right she was just more comfortable and it just it was it was more <clears throat> as selfish as it sounds it was more comfortable for us as well sitting around the bedside to know that uh, mum wasn't in pain but of course it was and that, and that isn't selfish is it what we want for people who we love is that they are as comfortable and as peaceful and as dignified as they can be to their last breath that's mm -hmm. that's because we love them yeah. and of course we get into our own bereavement less traumatised if their dying has been less traumatic and they would want that for us and you mm -hmm. talked about your mum being somebody who would probably have wanted in some way to shepherd you through that process yeah. so she knew she couldn't be there for you in your bereavement even though that must have broken her heart to think about you grieving and her not there to support you mm. but by 
modelling dying, I suppose. I meet a lot of people whose parents clearly have been modelling dying for them, like the last lesson that we get from them. Yeah. I mean, my mum was lying there and she hadn't spoken for days and my little brother was, was crying and holding her hand and she woke up and said, she had nicknames for us all and she woke up and she said, don't worry Andy Woos, it's all just part of life. And she'd keep saying little things like that 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 kind of in a strange way got us through. Um but but it's it it's it's kind of sad what you say about you know, she was a a grief counsellor and it might have been quite sad that she couldn't get us through. I remember one day um lifting the blankets off her feet at the bottom because her feet and her hands were really warm. Um and I looked up at my mum and I don't know if it was just a a natural thing, but she had just one tear rolling down her cheek. Um, <clears throat> and I wonder if there was any cognitive reason for that or, or it was just a tear rolling down her cheek. Um, I don't, I don't know. Um, but she was there till, till much later than the doctors thought because she would do things like play with my hair and stuff like that. After they said that, no, 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 it's just her lungs and her heart working now. And I said, I, I commented, oh, she's never going to play with my hair again, because I love that. It's my, one of my favourite things. And she pulled her hand away from me and put it on my head and started oh. playing with my hair. So she's listening. Mm. She's listening and she's still in there. So some really interesting uh, research out of um, Vancouver in Canada, relatively recently, last 18 months, two years. We've always made the assumption that unconscious people can still hear us. Mm. And we've largely made that assumption because of people who've had head injuries that have made them unconscious, who've been in intensive care, maybe on a ventilator, and when they've recovered, they've told us about who visited them or conversations that they overheard. And we've realised, oh my goodness, we thought you were completely unconscious and there you were listening in all the time. So we do always assume that people who are unconscious as dying progresses mm. can hear. And you'll see, and you'll have seen, um, nursing staff talking to unconscious people. Um, we don't move them without telling them that we're going to move them. We don't give injections without explaining where the injection's going to be and touching the bit of skin with our fingers first to say, it's going to be just here, are you ready? Um mm. We don't wash people without, you know, asking permission in a way or explaining that that's what we're going to do now, brush their hair, whatever it is. Um, but this research that was done in Canada, a group of people who were close to dying gave permission um, to some researchers to put little um, electronic tags on their scalp to record their brain waves. And mm. that used to be a a big complicated clunky machine and and these days of course it's all much easier to do so they were able to record brain waves in these dying people and also record sounds that were going on in the room that the person was in and what they saw was more or less what you'd expect to see there are brain waves when we're awake and you'll know all this are different from brain waves when we're kind of daydreaming and a bit drowsy mm. which are different from brain waves when we're asleep which are different from brain waves when we're unconscious and yeah. they could see what we normally see is the progression in people towards dying that they are awake less and less 
they're asleep more and more that during sleep they dip in and out of deep unconsciousness and then towards the very end of our lives we're barely awake at all we might rouse to light sleep for some of the time but most of the time we're not just asleep we're deeply unconscious and getting more and more deeply unconscious all the bits of the brain are switching off till just the bit that drives the breathing is still working mm-hmm. But what they could see on these brain waves was, although those were the patterns, when there were noises in the room, voices, doors slamming, whatever, the brain responded. The brain was still responding to noise right to the very end of life. Now, we don't know whether that brain was hearing words that made sentences in the voice of a person that they recognised, or whether that's just a brain response to a stimulus of sound. We can't tell that from brain waves, but we certainly know that the brain is still responding to sound until the very end of life. And compiling that with our knowledge of people who survive being deeply unconscious, who report having been able to hear things, I think we've got better and better evidence that hearing is preserved And then there's your mum hearing something. She looks unconscious, but she's not. And she can disengage her hand from where it was and move it and stroke your hair to show you, I hear you, I'm making sense of what you're saying, and I'm still here. Uh, Isn't that wonderful? Yeah, yeah. That's just maybe a tear roll down my cheek. Um, (laughs) That's taken me... Excuse me. That's taken me right back to the room in the hospital and made me think of the sounds that, that may have been heard. And that's it's, that's kind of beautifully... Um, it's it's kind of beautifully comforting. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, to and know that she that could we, hear those things. Yeah. The, the normal have, sounds of life. And it's so important, isn't it? It's something we advise families to do who are sitting with a person who's dying is to chat to each other. And to include the person in the conversation, even if they're not replying, and talk about mm-hmm. happy things, things that you remember, things that you love about the person, things you've appreciated about them. Yeah. Um, but also, people who love us love to hear us loving each other. So, you know, mm. brothers and sisters, um, extended family members, dear friends, chatting to each other about the things that matter to them. And it's okay to laugh. It's okay to remember funny things. You know, this is, as your mum said so wisely, it's a part of life. And actually mm. for them, lying there, being able to hear that actually we're together, we're supporting each other, we're loving each other. I wish I didn't have to go, but listen to them. They're going to be okay without me. Mm. Is a really, really important part of what's going on there. Yeah, and and we did. <coughs> Excuse me. There was me and my two brothers, and all our partners, and we talked, and we, we, we every now and again got <laughs> mad hysteria, mm-hmm. <laughs> and couldn't stop laughing, and then felt that we were being really disrespectful, and then we'd be crying, and we shared stories, and it's quite comforting to know that Mum was listening to us. Yeah. Because she'd she'd actually chime in with the odd the odd word every now and then as well, just out of the blue. <clears throat> After I say days of not speaking, 
um, there was one time when my dad said that to my sister-in-law, Danny, are you going to take your coat off? And she said, no, because I've got a hole in my leggings. And my mum, after a, probably about a week of not speaking, just said, well, it's not like I'll be looking. <laughs> <laughs> and she kept saying things like that, just out of the blue. <laughs> so, you know, she, she was there. And it's, it's a comfort to know that she was listening to those funny stories and those laughs that we were having. And um, as, as hard as we found it, and we did find it, you know, the hardest thing ever. Um, me and my two brothers were so close to mum. It was a com. It's it's kind of a comfort to know that she was listening to all yeah. of that. Yeah. Mm. So maybe it'd be useful for the people who who listen to your podcast mm. to give a kind of warning. Here's your warning. Mm. Uh, that we're going to just talk through the process of events that happens as a person is dying just so that we've all got a kind of reference point mm. and I think that's important for two reasons one is that the more we know and understand what's going on the less we fear something much more terrible might happen so that's mm -hmm. really important knowing what to expect and being able to see where we are in the process so just like when we're um somebody's birth partner for example you know there's a difference between uh, vague twinges in in the tummy as the contractions first start and really strong contractions that are coming with very little gap between them you know you're in a different place in labor depending on what's happening with the contractions and it helps people to be better prepared for what's going on Mm. But the other thing, which also has a parallel with birth care, is if we know what ordinary dying with well-controlled symptoms looks like, and that isn't what we're seeing in front of us when somebody's dying, then we know to demand something be done about it. And the reason that standards of uh, birth care improved in Britain is because women came to understand what good birth care looked like and they started yeah. to demand that and that made standards rise and it made women safer and it made babies safer so <clears> we need everybody <throat> to understand deathbed care in the same way I think mm -hmm. so we don't have somebody at someone's side watching them for example being uncomfortable and saying oh well they're dying what do you expect yeah. no they're dying and I expect that their pain will be controlled because it isn't the dying that's causing this pain it's whatever the illness was they already had mm. what were you doing before to manage the pain because that's what needs to be happening now yeah. so understanding it to know what to expect and understanding it to demand excellent standards. Mm. So the, the long view is that dying is a recognisable process and that as it starts, the main thing that people notice is just that they're more tired. So as our body is winding down, our energy levels just don't last out so long anymore mm. 
And actually, any serious illness will do that, whether we're going to die of it or not. Anybody who's ever had flu will recognise that thing where you actually just don't have the energy to get out of bed. So we're talking real flu now, not not, not man flu, right? <laughs> or a gentle cold. Oh, no, Whatever. Yeah. yeah. But so so you so you know you know when it's flu. Because actually, even just to turn over, to pick up your phone, to make the call to work, to say you can't get in, mm. feels like running a marathon. And when you make the call, you don't have to do the special I'm phoning in sick voice because you <laughs> feel so terrible. You know exactly what I mean. I yeah? Do. yeah. I'm thinking of my older brother, actually. <laughs> oh. So here's the thing that that's just a body response to being really really sick and all our energy is going into just sustaining us because we're so sick and with flu we're going to get better but if we've got an illness that isn't going to get better then that tiredness is just going to persist and what recharges our batteries interestingly doesn't seem so much to be food and drink as sleep Sleep's the really important thing. And what we see, and again, it happens when you've got flu, is that people sleep for a long time and it recharges their batteries a bit. So you might have the energy then, if you've got the flu, to creep to the kitchen and stick the kettle on, throw a tea bag in a cup, but then mm. you've got to sit down to summon up the energy to pour the water onto the tea bag. And then you crawl back to bed and sleep and the tea goes cold anyway. But that kind of sleep recharging your energy batteries for a while, it can do a bit. Then you're exhausted again, you go back to sleep. That happens when we're seriously ill and it also happens when we're dying. And the energy change, the rate of it, is a really helpful predictor for life expectancy. So in my medical okay. career, I've had hundreds and hundreds of people say to me, how long do you think my person is going to live for or, or mm. patients say to me so how long have I got doc and the answer is I really don't know it's not like I know and I'm not telling you it's that it's so individual that it's hard to tell but yeah. there are ways of guesstimating it and what I usually do is explain to people how we guesstimate so they can guesstimate too so if you notice that from one year to the next, you don't have the kind of energy levels you used to have. So I'm thinking of your average person in their 80s or 90s, for mm. example, or a person who's now got um, quite serious lung disease or heart disease or liver disease or progressing yeah. cancer, whatever. If... This year, I haven't got as much energy as I had last year. And actually thinking about it, that's a bit different again from the year before. Then the change is happening year on year and you're still probably measuring life expectancy in years. Mm. But a time will come when actually you start to notice that I haven't got as much energy this month as I had last month. And I certainly haven't got as much energy as I had six months ago. And now we're measuring life expectancy in months into a year or so but not years into decades okay so you can see it's not a very precise science yeah but but i get the the the, the, mm. the, the kind of process yeah, yeah. and so of course as that narrows down as the changes are noticeable week by week and eventually day by day mm. you're much more accurate in the prediction the closer you are to mm. dying and so once changes are happening week by week and you're measuring into 
you know, weeks into a month or so, or days where you're measuring in days into a week or a couple of weeks maybe, it's much easier then to know when to get the family to come if they're far away and they need to travel to be there or or whatever. Mm-hmm. So this gradual loss of energy is the first and probably the most important of yeah. the symptoms and signs of the body wearying and winding down towards dying. And then towards the very end of life, people need so much sleep that they're very rarely awake. And what tends to happen to some people is that some of the time they're actually stuck in that space that's not quite asleep and not quite awake, which we've all had, you know, when the alarm goes off and you're dreaming about something and then your dream becomes a dream about fire bells or um, ambulance alarms or, yeah. or something like that. And then gradually as you wake up, you realise, no, 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 it's not it's not that stuff. It's just the alarm clock. <laughs> Um, so that momentary confusion is a thing that can last in some people for longer than being just momentary. So sometimes people are mm-hmm. not fully asleep, but they're not pr- quite properly awake and they're a bit muddled. They yeah. think that you are a different person from who you are, even though they know you really well. Um, or they think that the staff are their family or, or that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And sometimes if they're awake for long enough, that will clarify and they'll come back to normal. And some people will be quite muddled some of the time and understanding how to talk to people who are muddled so that we just stay calm so they don't get panicky about it really helps them to feel feel safe in the moment. But largely, if there's nothing in the illness that's interfering with the person's mind or their brain, when they're awake, they are their normal self, their mm. usual sense of humour, uh, still pleased to see all the people they love, don't suddenly become pleased to see the people they've never been pleased to see. You know, it's just us. <clears throat> so time goes by and we see that we've got people who are awake less and asleep more. And then the next thing that happens is something that we who are caring for them will notice but something that they don't notice for themselves and it's this that during a period of being asleep apparently asleep something happens that we need to wake them up for it might be that they take regular painkillers and we don't want them to sleep past the point where the painkillers will run out and they'll wake up because of pain so we wake Mm -hmm. them up to give them the dose at the right time or maybe there's an important visitor or a phone call or something like that and we can't wake them up doesn't matter what we do, we cannot waken them. And when they waken again later on, they say they've had a lovely sleep. And we say, oh, we tried really hard to wake you up. Yeah, you didn't. Well, I didn't know. No, I would have woken up. So what we know is they weren't just asleep. They actually, at that point, were unconscious, which is different from being asleep because the brain now no longer responds to external stimuli. So... What we know from that is that although people have periods of unconsciousness that gradually get longer and longer, they aren't aware that that's happening to them. So they don't find that troubling or distressing or frightening. Mm -hmm. So gradually, as time goes by, those of us who are in the room are seeing somebody who's asleep more, awake less, maybe decides not to get out of bed and into a chair anymore, so they're just resting in bed almost all of the day or all of the time until eventually they're just unconscious all of the time. Mm -hmm. Now, once the brain is fully unconscious, well, we've already talked about how the hearing bit in 
some people at least, and we don't know what proportion of people, the hearing bit is still working, so we'll assume they can hear us and we'll carry on talking to them and carry on reassuring them. But the rest of the brain is shut down. It isn't noticing the body. And the only bit of the brain that's still working is the bit that controls our breathing, which is in the brain stem, right at the, the back, at the bottom of the brain, where it joins onto the spinal cord. Mm-hmm. And when we're not thinking about our breathing, right, everybody's thinking about their breathing now, Richard. <laughs> so normally we don't think about our breathing, but you and I are subconsciously managing our breathing. So you're breathing quietly, and the people who are listening to us talking are breathing quietly in order to hear. And I'm breathing in a way that lets me take quiet breaths that don't sound really noisy on my microphone with enough breath to then speak as I'm exhaling and say whole phrases as I do that. So although we don't normally think about thinking about our breathing... When we're conscious, we do manage our breathing to some extent. Mm. When we're unconscious, we go into completely reflex breathing cycles. And we very rarely see people who are deeply unconscious. The closest most of us have ever been is to see somebody who's so drunk that they've passed out. And Mm. when you think about the way they breathe, they do this unconscious breathing cycles. So periods of very deep breathing that can be quite noisy and it's noisy because they're not feeling the back of their throat. It's noisy because they can't feel their voice box so they breathe out through their vocal cords and make a voice noise as they breathe out some of the time. Mm. And that's the noise that if you didn't know better you might think your person was groaning or sighing or trying to speak. So it's really important that we've got people who are experienced in what happens as someone's dying, explaining to the people who love this person that this is unconscious breathing, it's not groaning. And that's the argument I was having with myself beside my nana's bed as she was dying. Yeah. Some of the time the breathing is faster and shallower. And again, if you hadn't seen that before, if you didn't know better, you might think the person was working really hard to breathe you might think they were breathless so it's important we explain that this is another part of the unconsciousness breathing cycle some of the time there can be quite long pauses some of the time there can be very deep shuddery breaths where you think oh that person's having a horrible time and yet they're completely unaware Mm. and then during a phase where the breathing is relatively slow there'll be pauses and longer pauses and there'll be a breath out and then just there isn't another breath in there's nothing at all spectacular about the last breath not like on EastEnders so you know (laughs) there's no sudden um, choking or suddenly waking up and telling you where the treasure is buried or some horrible feeling of fading away or something like that Mm. it's very very gentle it's very very peaceful And all of that is able to happen if the person doesn't have really unpleasant physical symptoms that keep pulling them back from unconsciousness because they're too uncomfortable to remain unconscious or they're too breathless to remain unconscious or things like that. So it's really important that the symptom control that's going on in the background carries on so that the person doesn't get uncomfortable. 
Mm-hmm. Now, the difficulty can be that over the, the last couple of days of life in particular, a person will often not be awake often enough for them to be able to take the medicines they've been taking regularly up to that point. Mm-hmm. So very often at that point, we'll find a different way of giving those medicines. So in France, what they would go to next would be suppositories. That's the way the French like to do things. So they make the, put, okay. the, put the medicines into little like wax, like bullet-shaped things and pop them up inside somebody's rectum and the wax melts and the drugs get into the blood supply in the rectum, into the bloodstream and work. And it's a really, really effective way of giving medicines to people. Mm. But we're British and we don't like to have our bottoms interfered with. <laughs> um, so generally we use injections instead and rather than giving people lots of injections through a day we'll put a tiny little needle under their skin so it doesn't have to go into a vein just goes under their skin and then whatever would be their 24-hour supply of painkiller or breathlessness management whatever the drugs are Mm -hmm. goes into a syringe that gets pumped in gradually over 24 hours so it'll be the equivalent dose to what they were taking when they were swallowing it It wasn't making them unconscious when they were taking it by mouth and it isn't making them be unconscious now. That's really important to know. Mm. Unconsciousness is happening because dying is happening and the drugs don't shorten the person's life. They simply stop them from getting uncomfortable during their dying. Wow. So almost it's almost a comfort that they have died because you know that they were in comfort, in a way, because yeah. the pain wasn't pulling them back. Yeah, yeah, that's that's um, certainly a different way of looking at it than than conventionally we're taught to look at it, I suppose. And it's that's kind of comforting in a strange way. You know, I'm sat here and I, I am very close to emotion. My it it was only two days ago that we buried my mum and it was only a month ago today that she died. And and me and my mum were so very close. But it really does help talking, you know, matter-of-factly and through the facts rather than the feelings almost. Yeah, it's an interesting thing, isn't it, that when we're deep in our emotions, that's quite a lonely and tricky place because we process our emotions deep Mm. inside us. Um, And one of the things I'm sure you notice when you're in your when you've got your therapist hat on Mm -hmm. that I used to find really interesting with my cognitive therapy hat on was how when we're talking to some somebody about something they find really difficult and now they are describing it and we're exploring it and we're thinking about the detail of it somehow they're not in the place of experiencing it it's almost like we're sitting side by side looking over there at it together Mm. and so now the person isn't alone in the place the place is over there and they're looking at it and Mm. they've got our companionship in that therapeutic conversation Mm. yeah yeah absolutely um i've i've found that um when i am wearing my therapist hat it is um because I didn't know how easy I'd find it and how long I'd need to leave it. But I found that I'm completely with them for 50 minutes. And it's actually a break from my life yes. for 50 minutes. Yeah. And and it's, it's really interesting, isn't it? Because we've had a career of 
explaining to people that they might like to go away and experiment a bit with distraction mm -hmm. for those difficult things that can't be solved rather than turning them over and over could they find something else to do with their mind that mm. takes them away from the sorrow and the anxiety of the currently unsolvable situation and we know in our in our head that distraction is a helpful thing mm. but actually now we've got to walk the walk as people who are sor sorrowing ourselves yeah it's absolutely. really interesting how distracting it is doing our work role and becoming completely absorbed in somebody else's story and somebody else's therapy. I found it strange how how easy it's been to <laughs> to forget things that I would normally talk to people about and, and with. Um, and then I'll say something and I'll think, oh yeah, obviously, why aren't I doing that? Why, why aren't I, you know, why have I found it such a um, light bulb moment that, that works a distraction? You know, things that I'd, I'd normally talk about and that I'd completely forgotten because it's me and I'm yeah. going through this now. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting, isn't it? My favourite cognitive therapy question is, what would you advise a friend mm. who told you they were going through something like this? That's one of my favourites. And I love it because mm -hmm. people can always, can't they, always think of the great advice they'd give a friend. <laughs> yeah. like, okay, so... What is there any bit of that that you could apply to you? And you can watch their faces crack open mm. and as they laugh and they just go, yeah, okay, that's a fair cop. Yeah, absolutely. Because I talk to clients and they will be, they will say something to me and then I'll ask that question and they'll say the opposite straight away. And yeah, yeah like you say, that's when you see their face sort of crack and they, they cotton on to what, what you've just, what you've just done. That is, a, yeah, I do, I do like that one because we do all have the best advice and, support for our friends and and we don't necessarily always give ourselves the um we don't necessarily think that we always deserve it ourselves like we're, we're not as important as such um yeah, yeah it's 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 fascinating isn't it and just one of the ways that people like to help each other is to fix things for each other isn't mm -hmm. it so I've, I've written a bit about this in, in my second book listen mm -hmm. um which is just how much, and particularly those of us who are in the helping professions, mm -hmm. went into the helping professions to help people. So when people tell us that they're in a dilemma, we immediately get our kit out and we try and solve it. And actually, when the dilemma is an emotional dilemma, it isn't ours to solve, is it? It's theirs. Mm -hmm. And somehow being able to be their companion and their supporter while they sort it out mm -hmm. is is the way forward and we know we all know that we're great at giving advice but we're useless at taking advice because <laughs> when we tell somebody our dilemma and they say oh well why don't you well if it was as easy as that we'd have solved it by now thanks yeah also everyone's completely different and everyone would have a different the solution for for this person wouldn't necessarily work for that person exactly. uh, you know if, like i say we we sat with mum for the last three or four weeks of her life round the clock and thankfully the doctors and nurses at um uh clatterbridge cancer center in liverpool were amazing they were phenomenal and they made us feel welcome and they did exactly what they, they did everything that they could for us. Um, but yeah, we, we were there all the time and we've been raised together, but all three of us dealt with it in a completely different way and still are now. 
And that's fascinating too, isn't mm. it? So it's really important for people to understand that what works for me might not work for somebody who grew up in the same house as me, mm-hmm. had all all the same ways of looking at life from the people around us, mm-hmm. but we're actually all so different. Yeah. Um, I, and, and I like the title of your book, Listen, because... Um, I think I've spoken about it on this podcast before. It's 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 a different thing, you know, listening to somebody and listening to somebody. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes we don't, you know. Oh well, I would do this and I would do that. And hang on, just listen, just sit and listen. And Mum used to say that to me. She used to say, "No, no, no, just listen. I don't want you to talk back. I don't want you to solve anything. Just listen to me, please." Yeah. And. Yeah. You know, I wish I'd listened more now, but um, I suppose everyone, everyone, a lot of people think similar things. I wish I'd done this. I wish I'd done that. I'm very, um, I've come to terms with a lot of actually me and mum were so close. We did so much. We laughed so much. We cried so much. Yes, we argued, but I'm never going to feel guilty because we argued so much because we loved each other so much. And I've I've come to terms with a lot of that, hopefully early on, um, and, and, and reconciled a lot of that in my head because I thought I don't want to have regrets because me and mum did so much together, went on holidays together. We did much more than a lot of my friends would do with their mums. Yeah. So I feel at, at peace with that with with that in a way. And that's very important, isn't it? That um recognition that a relationship that's worth investing in will include exploring our differences, also mm-hmm. known as arguments. Yeah. Because actually that's how we square things <clears> and <throat> preserve the relationship and maintain the relationship and build the relationship Mm. and we may have very much less in the way of arguments with people with whom we feel our relationships are perhaps a little bit more fragile a little bit more brittle and we don't dare to have the argument Mm. yeah that's true but yeah me and mum we're known for our arguments but not in a not in a bad way my little brother would say oh will you two stop arguing we're like we're discussing. We're having a good conversation here. <laughs> you yeah. know, it was. I. I love. I. You know. I. I will grow to love those times. Whereas now they're a bit painful to think about. Yeah. And but all of it's painful to think about the, the kayaking that my mum took up in the latter few years, and when we went kayaking together not long ago, just a few months ago, kayaking on the River Dee and and things like that. All those things. The good memories. The bad memories. They're all too painful at the minute. But I'm. I'm getting there and I'm processing yeah. them. One of the things that I struggled with with mum, with mum was the 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 gradual lack of eating from months back. Mm. And I remember we went on a cruise for my 40th in October and um, she she got up and left one of the meals crying because she was so upset that she couldn't eat it. Um, and we don't know still, was that the medica- was that the, the treatment? Um, the I think it was palpaciclib. Um, well, she was on a few actually, or was it the the dying process kicking yeah. in early? Yeah, and it's really hard to know, isn't it? But I think it's really important again, again for your listeners. This is this is a thing to to think about that people, particularly people with cancer, experience changes in appetite and in taste, mm-hmm. and sometimes it is the medicines, but sometimes it's just a side effect of 
having cancer somewhere in the body. It's a really, really bizarre and interesting thing that we don't really understand. So a lot of people describe that they lose the taste for a particular type of food. So they might lose their sweet tooth because everything tastes too sweet. Mm -hmm. Or some people find that tastes are too strong. So they can't eat red meat, for example, because it tastes too bitter or too gamey. But they can manage white meat, which is a little bit sweeter. Some people find that everything's got a slightly metallic tang to it. I think that was mum. Yeah, and mm. we we still don't know an explanation for that. And um, nutrition therapists have a variety of, of good tricks that they can try um, to help people with with their taste. But for some people, it never goes back to normal. I've met people whose biggest loss was that they couldn't enjoy a cup of tea anymore. Yeah, that was and that was end. oh so important. A cup of tea and, is, is, is everything. Yeah. <laughs> And, you know, it's and maybe it's a very similar process to the process of taste change in pregnancy where women lose the taste for things that they've always liked and perhaps Mm -hmm. acquire different tastes or even want to eat things that we wouldn't normally think of as food. That's a Mm -hmm. thing called pica. Um, So I've certainly met women who who were desperate to eat coal dust, for example, (laughs) or a teacher who wanted to uh, eat chalk powder you know that the, when when the, when the board had been cleaned, dip a finger on the in the dust and 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 lick that. So very strange taste changes as well. Yeah. So we our bodies we don't really understand, but families get very worried about people not eating, partly because they worry that they're going to starve, mm. but actually. The less we do, the less calories we need. So partly that process of doing less and less towards the end of life goes hand in hand with needing fewer and fewer calories anyway. Mm. Um, But the other thing is that as the dying process proceeds, the inner organs are gradually shutting down. And so certainly in the very last part of life, the last days into weeks the guts themselves aren't really working as a digestive system very effectively anymore. So the food that we do put in often doesn't get fully digested. Some people find that it just sits in their stomach and it hangs like a big weight, but it never really moves further down. And then they might find that they'll be sick and they'll see food that they ate yesterday or even the day before that. And they feel a lot better now because it's not sitting like a big ball in their stomach anymore. Um, some people find that they try to eat to please their families. You, you can just imagine that, can't you? And then they're rewarded with just having horrible diarrhoea because their digestive system can't digest all of that stuff. So it all comes out the other end. And of course, if you're not very agile or mobile anymore, that also might mean you don't get to the toilet in time. And that's a really unpleasant thing to mm. happen to somebody. So what I often say to families is don't push just tempt Mm -hmm. Um, and just think about tiny tastes of things this person really likes and that might not be the things they used to like because they might have this taste change um, thing happening so I've met a lot of people who craved um, spicy things rather than sweet things and they always used to have a sweet tooth but now they want spicy and Mm. being able to just you know make some gravy some proper homemade gravy that everybody else is having with their meal um, and add some Worcester sauce to it 
or you know the family's having a curry would you like a bit of sauce and a bit of naan to dip in it whatever it is or some people who always liked quite sweet things but now want sharp tastes so you know a little bit of stewed rhubarb for example that might have been too sharp for them before now becomes a taste that they they really like so we'll have to experiment and just see what the person likes and if they prefer to get their calories from you know a glass of beer a glass of whiskey a glass mm. of wine that's fine too you know oh, God, anything so that they're going to enjoy mm. yeah beer sometimes is a problem because of the volume mm-hmm. um and and the gassiness of it mm-hmm. um and one of the things that people can quite like is um, if you know what their favourite tipple is, like you know, gin and tonic or a, a whiskey and lemonade or whatever, pour that into the ice cube maker in your fridge <laughs> and make little whiskey and soda ice cubes. It works really well if you put something fizzy in it and it has to be quite dilute, not a lot of alcohol, because otherwise the alcohol will be like an antifreeze yeah. and it won't freeze. Mm-hmm. Um but if you freeze these drinks and they've got bubbles in, instead of it being a big, hard ice cube, it makes a softer, crunchier ice cube that's really refreshing in somebody's mouth. It's taste they like. It isn't a volume that's difficult. Um, so that can be a really nice way of getting tastes that people like into it, their mouths That as does well. sound. That sounds lovely, actually. Um, yeah, uh, my mum had struggled with um, what we thought was fibromyalgia for years and then she lost her appetite um, early on but two days before she went into hospital she drove me and my partner we went up to a lake in Wales called Bala um, which is a beautiful lake and I know Bala Lake do you yeah, know it it's, it yeah. is gorgeous it's not that far from here but she drove drove us there we had a walk by the lake and she had a pie by the lake that we got from um, a bakery shop in Bala and um, and I meant, messaged my brothers and said, she's just walked better than than I've seen in years, and she's had a pie, you know. I, this is this is this is really good. Um, two days later, she was in hospital, and and you know that and that was it. But she'd had that pie. She'd been to my brothers that evening and had another pie. That was the most that she'd eaten in weeks. Yeah. And and as I say, the walk was the best I'd seen her walk. And the doctors have now said that it may not have been fibromyalgia for all those years. It may have been the bone cancer. Um, undiagnosed um but yeah she had that little spurt of energy that spurt of eating just before going into the hospital and she hadn't had it for months before it's a funny thing and we do see this thing that a lot of people refer to as the rally where Mm. somebody's been very very unwell and then they'll have an hour a few hours a day a couple of Mm. days of being surprisingly up and about and lucid mm. and everybody thinks oh we've got it wrong they're not dying after all and then very quickly go back to how they were and then continue to deteriorate from there so it, it's a thing to be aware of and just enjoy it while it lasts because it can be lovely people can do something yeah. that's so important so you you'll never forget will you you walk around baller and eating that pie that's no, just no, such never. a glorious memory to be left with so when people rally let's enjoy it absolutely that that's i think that's such an important message that i would never have thought of until again speaking to you i think this episode is so important because you've taught me a lot and hopefully that will translate to teaching a lot of people you know a lot because just just now that 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 click 
in my in my thoughts to to that day being some kind of sad memory to being oh wow I got that yeah is is beautiful what a gift there's a story in my my book of uh, my book of stories about how people live while they're dying mm. so that book was called with the end in mind mm-hmm. um, and one of the stories is a rally story it's an artificial rally really a young mum uh, who was known to be dying of cancer of the cervix and where her cancer was was now blocking a kidney so she was dying of kidney failure which makes people feel quite nauseous Mm-hmm. Um, and I got called by a GP over the weekend because she'd suddenly had this dramatic change where she wasn't sleeping, she was up, she had loud music on, she was dancing around the flat. And because I'd just finished doing uh, a, a year in the, the cancer centre where I live, um, I recognised that that can be a side effect of some of the anti-sickness tablets that we use. Mm. Um, and sure enough she'd been started on these anti-sickness tablets for the nausea from her kidney failure about 48 hours earlier and she wasn't nauseated anymore which was great Mm -hmm. but she had this strange side effect of not being able to sit still or relax body constantly in motion and mind constantly in motion as well and eventually Mm. that can completely exhaust people and I'd gone out to her flat to see her and realised that she was going to drive everybody bonkers. Her mum was living with her. Her teenage daughters had gone out for the day because she was just too energetic for them to bear. Um, so she and her mum and her sister borrowed a wheelchair from another family in the same block of flats. And they went off to the local shopping centre to use this energy because she loved to be out and about and hadn't been able to for quite a while. Well, I went back to the hospice to get the antidote to turn off this side effect of the drug because I didn't want to stop the drug. I didn't want her to be nauseated again. Mm. I just wanted to turn off this kind of drivenness. And when I got back with the antidote, which did take that drivenness away, she'd been up to the shops with her mum and her sister, they'd been in a (laughs) nail bar, they'd all had a manicure, they'd been to a cafe. By the time I got back, they were sitting um, out on the pavement with deck chairs with their neighbours who'd lent them the um, wheelchair. Uh, They they had bags of crisps and cans of beer and they were having a street party. And she died only a few hours later. Wow. But she'd had this magnificent final day of getting out, spending time with people she loved. Her nails were gorgeous. She felt magnificent. So it's a recognisable thing, and it's a thing that can happen, and it's a thing of wonder because it gives families this precious, precious time. Absolutely. I mean, my mum's last words were, it's been fun. And I say that um, it's hard to think that now, but in in the future, in a few weeks, maybe months, that will be a real comfort that they were her last words. And I kind of got that when you were saying that then, like, you know, maybe not straight away, they probably didn't think, oh, well, it's good good that we had that street party and and those times. They probably didn't think that straight away, I'd imagine. But in time, they will see that as a big comfort that they did have that, like me with my trip to Bala. You know, in time I'll be like, thank God that I had that. Speaking of God, just before we finish, do you have faith? Ooh, now that's a question that I don't talk about with people. Oh, okay. 
I've often found that people who have a very particular belief feel mm. anxious when they're talking about really profound things, and particularly at the edge of life, yeah. that the person they're talking to doesn't share that belief. But what I've noticed yeah. that is really, really fascinating to me is what a comfort it is for dying people mm -hmm. when they know what they believe. And it can be people with, who are, you know, like very devout Muslim, Jewish, mm. Christian, uh, a, a deeply observant Buddhist, a really convinced atheist. It doesn't matter what they believe. What matters is how strongly they believe it and That's how much that philosophy has helped them in their life. So their philosophy might actually not be to do with God. It might be to do with... Um, environmentalism and saving mm. the planet um, or, uh, or a political belief mm -hmm. um, but towards the end of people's lives they're doing this thing of working out what they're worth and what, what they've been about what was I for and they hold themselves to account against whatever they believe is most important so for people who do have a profound faith it's often that but for other people it can be other values mm. And what's really difficult is people who are kind of lukewarm in their belief. They think there might be God, but they're not sure. And they're not mm. quite sure how to hedge their bets around that. So that's why, as a practitioner, walking with people at the very edge of life, I don't share what I think or believe in that domain. Because it's really important that what I understand in that room is what, that person believes i'm so glad that i asked you that question because that answers that answer is 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 really good i i mean when when we got mum's diagnosis the first thing i wanted to do was go to my neighbor who's a vicar and talk to him about what he believes because i'm not i wouldn't say that i have a faith as such but i'm quite a spiritual person but obviously i don't have the answers i know people that are so um convinced that they know and my answer to that is, well, you know, we can't know, can we? But it, it, towards the end, I wanted to know. I really wanted to know. You yeah. know, towards the end of mum's life, I, I wished I had. And I was so pleased that mum had a faith. And I was so pleased that my stepdad, who is uh, Muslim, he, he, he did a, a prayer and we played it for mum in his voice um, over and over again as she was passing. Um, and he came to the church the other day and... The most moving thing about the ceremony the other day is that my dad and my stepdad walked in holding each other. Oh. Um, my mum, that would have meant everything to my mum. Yeah. Um, it was it was beautiful. But the faith that my stepdad holds and then gave in part to my mum, I think, helped her through. Yeah. Um, and I, th I think that people who who understand where they're grounded mm. in terms of their life philosophy, their spirituality. I love the word spirituality because, of course, it doesn't mean religion. It's mm. much, much deeper than that. Yeah. But people whose spirituality is finely tuned, who've been listening to their inner values to guide the way they've done their living and they've conducted their dying, mm. have found enormous comfort in doing that. And those of us who are around them draw strength from the way they're doing that and it doesn't matter what the belief system is 
it's the way they're using the belief system that makes all the difference. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Catherine, I'm so thankful that you joined me today. I've learned so much and I hope that other people will take comfort. It, it, it sounds weird saying it, but, but comfort from, from this. I mean, it shouldn't sound weird saying it, but it, it does. <laughs> <laughs> Taking comfort from learning about dying. But maybe that's how we should be. Maybe that's more like we should be, like you were saying at the start. Um, so thank you very much for joining me today. Well, thank you for inviting me. Thank you for having the courage to do that so soon after walking those last weeks with your mum and then mm. after your mum's death and funeral. That's that's really remarkable and I'm really grateful to you. I love what you're saying about it being uplifting mm. to to talk about these things. So I'm going to have a little toot about my books before we go because go one of my favourite reviews of with the end in mind mm -hmm. which is just stories about people living while they're dying is mm -hmm. this is a surprisingly uplifting read yeah and actually i've had lots and lots of comments on social media and twitter from people um, about tears on public transport while they've been reading it or listening to it yeah. but always saying actually these are good tears tears these are necessary tears it is possible to read it dry-eyed i am assured i am assured <laughs> but sometimes people just feel a bit moved because it reminds them of something in their own lives so i wrote with the end in mind really to give dying back to everybody to take it out of hospital and help all of us to know it and recognize it and i thought that was it you know i was a doctor i took early retirement to do something about giving dying back to the public so i was a doctor and then i became a doctor who wrote a book and that's it i finished now thanks um, <laughs> what i wasn't expecting was that with the end in mind would become a bestseller <laughs> and get translated into i think it's in 16 languages I've just now. Seen it's just it in like, a few different languages that, that is just completely bonkers and so of course now the publishers want a second book and i said well, no 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 I, I've, I've said what i came to say i'm done here it's you know that's it a second book would just be a vanity project i don't need to write a second book and then the letters started and people are so creative people wrote to newspapers that had interviewed me or run book reviews they found my agent now that's a sentence i never thought i'd say um, or they found me on social media or friends of friends of friends forwarded emails to me all these people saying either the thing i really needed to hear which was thank you because now I understand what happened to my person as they were dying and I'd been traumatised by what I thought had happened. Mm. But actually, I realise now that it was completely peaceful and they were unconscious. Or thank you because I'm getting ready to die and I can prepare my family now because I know what to expect. Because I do mm. think knowledge is power. So that was fantastic. But the other half of the correspondence I hadn't been quite expecting, which was, OK, we need to talk about this stuff, don't we? But I don't know where to start. I'm frightened mm. to raise the subject. I keep trying to raise the subject and everybody else closes me down. I don't know what the words are. Will it be terrible once we start? Will we never be able to think about anything else? How do we have these conversations? Mm. And with a very heavy heart, I have to say, I thought, oh, do you know what? I do have something else to say, don't I? Because I understand about these conversations because I've been involved in so many of them. So that's how the second book, Listen, was born. I went mm. back to the went back to the publishers and said, "Do you know what? 
I think I might have a second book and this is what it's going to be about. And mm-hmm. they said, oh, fantastic, but we don't want another book about dying. Oh. So, oh, well, hang on, because you do know what, um, what my what background I... is, don't you? <laughs> so listen, it, you know, it's very obvious from listen that I worked in palliative care for 30 years. Hmm. But it draws across the lifespan and it touches in a bit more detail than the first book on using some of the cognitive therapy ideas mm-hmm. as well. So, you know, what are those daunting and difficult conversations? And they're anything from um, parenting our teens and listening well instead of trying to sort them out um, to there's, there's, a, there's a story of a girl who's deciding whether or not to come out to her dad in a conversation in the car and how he conducts that conversation will make <laughs> or break what's going to happen mm-hmm. um, family dilemmas family fallouts everything from birth to death really but I called it listen because actually that's the most important thing we think these conversations are about what I say to you but actually these conversations are about what I hear you tell Mm. me wow Um, I'm looking forward to reading them both they're both on their way to me (laughs) Um, and I'm really looking forward to them Um, again thank you so much for joining me so we've got listen how to find the words for tender conversation and with the end in mind how to live and die well and I will, without even reading them, with having spoken to you, I will recommend those books straight off. And then I will recommend them again once I've read them, sorry, I'm sure. Well, Richard, so, thank you very, very much for inviting me. I really love talking to you. Yeah, it's, it's, it's been fascinating. And thank you so much for joining me. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs>